Once again, going to plunge into Mark's gospel. I hope you've enjoyed Mark's gospel. It moves with such uh, speed, and it's so well put together. And, and I know that we didn't read all that we're going to touch on today during this sermon, but I think it's important that we put the two pieces together to, to properly understand what Deacon Corey just read for us. Uh, so we're going to be in chapter 9 this morning of Mark's gospel. If you have your phone and laptop or um, if you've got your iPad, anything like that, we'd love for you to follow along to make sure this is God's Word and not Tripp's Word. Um, it's always good to see that in Scripture. Uh, but chapter 9, and uh, we're going to start with three different points today uh, about prayer and worship. And one is our access point in prayer and worship. So the access point, we're going to look at a failure of Jesus' apostles to pray rightly and we're going to look at how we should pray in the right way, the right way for us to pray. So our access point, a failure, a massive failure, and then praying rightly. And so we're going to look, first of all, at the transfiguration story. Great story, chapter 9, verse 2. Here's what it says. Jesus took his disciples, Peter, James, and John, the inner three, up on a high mountain in order to... Uh, to be by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, the text says. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, certainly Peter, James, and John would have known this. What do you go up on the mountain to do? You're going there to meet with God, right? So they expected an amazing experience with the glory of God. Remember Moses. This is typical of what Moses would do. He'd go up on Mount Sinai, he would meet with God, and uh, there he would receive a word from God. And typically, God would show his radiant splendor in a cloud, or in fire, or in smoke. We call that a theophany, when God reveals his glory, his purity, his holiness. Lo and behold, look at verse number 7. They're up on the mountain, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. So they're up on this mountain, they're meeting with God. And the disciples knew the story all too well. But here's the deal. If you were one of those chosen three, you think that maybe you would be overjoyed, right? We get to see God in the cloud and hear the voice of the Almighty. You think that they might just be filled and overwhelmed with appreciation that Jesus took these three up there. But they're not. They're not. Look at what happens. Jesus becomes transfigured before them in verse 3. Jesus is glowing radiantly white with the Shekinah glory of God. And so Jesus is wrapped in glory, whiter than anybody on earth could bleach his clothing. And there on top of the mountain appears Moses. Now go figure. They're on a mountain with God's glory. Moses is there. All this sounds familiar. And Elijah. Peter blurts out as only Peter could do, right? Anything that comes up in his mind is going to go out through his mouth. And he says, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, and one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And we know he's just stumbling for words, and he's just throwing that out there, because in verse 6, it said, For he did not know what to say, and they were terrified, it says. They're terrified on this mountain. Why? Why? Well, remember back in Exodus 33 when Moses went on a mountain to meet with God? He said, show me your glory. 
He said, I am not going another step towards the promised land unless I can see your glory and know that you're going to travel with us and that you're going to be our God to lead us into that promised land. Remember what God said? God said, I'll show you my glory and I'll just let a little of it pass by you. He said, i got to hide you then in the cleft of a rock in order that I can protect you. And here's what God says to Moses. My face you shall not see, because no one can look on my face and live. Remember that story? You think maybe that's in the minds of Peter, James, and John? <laughs> no one can look on my face and live? That's a terrifying thing to come into the, the, the uh, close, have a close encounter with the holiness of a righteous God. Because as a sinner, we can't stand in the presence of a righteous and holy God. It is certain death. God said, you cannot look on my face and live. And they're filled with fear on the mountain that day. But here's a difference in the story between what Moses did on the mountain and what Jesus is doing on the mountain. Here's the difference. When Moses would come down after meeting with the glory of God, remember his face would shine. It would shine with the glory of God, the radiance of God's presence and his spirit. And he'd have to veil himself for a couple of days because he would frighten the people. But here's the difference. Moses was only reflecting the glory of God. He was not the glory of God. Uh, so it's just like the moon. The moon has no light to shine, but we, we see the moon through the sun's light. It's reflected light, reflected glory. So the difference is Jesus is filled with glory. It's not like he's reflecting the Father's glory. He is emanating the glory of the Father. He is wrapped in the glory of the Father. His clothes are whiter than any bleach could ever get them. So the point here for us in prayer and worship is Jesus is the glory of the Father. Peter, James, and John, they're scared to death, but, but Jesus is the glory that they get to see. So the first thing that you need to remember in prayer and in worship is Jesus is the glory of the Father. You know, every other world religion has a teacher, a sage, a teacher of wisdom, a guru, who will say, here are the steps to meet with God. And those steps of holiness will take you to God. Only in Christianity does Jesus say, if you want to see the glory of the Father, look at me. Spend time with me. I'll be transfigured before you in glory. If you want to see God, look at me. In fact, Hebrews 1.3 tells us this about Jesus. It says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe with his power. Isn't that a glorious thing to have a Lord like that? He's the access point for glory. But more than that, verses 7 and 8, we find two other traits of Jesus that have to do with prayer and worship. The cloud overshadowed them, verse 7. Voice came out of the cloud, and it spoke to Jesus. And it said, this is my beloved son. It spoke to in their midst. Listen only to him. Listen to only to him. So the second thing we get is the authority that's bestowed upon Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me by the Father. So when you come through the access point of Jesus, you are coming through the authority of God's only Son. And then verse 8 and 7, it also says, 
this is my beloved son. So when we come to Jesus in prayer, we know that he's the one that's been affirmed in love by the Father. And so if we have his glory, if we have his power and his majesty, if we're able to share in the fellowship of his love, that's all we need for worship and prayer, right? Those three things. Moses, the one who passed God's law down to them, the covenant giver of the Old Testament, then vanishes from their sight. Elijah, the prophet and all the prophets who continuously pointed to Jesus and said, there's a coming redeemer, there's a coming one who's going to die for your sin. That prophet Elijah disappears from the stage. And it says that only Jesus was left on the Mount of Transfiguration. You think that's maybe God's way of saying Jesus is sufficient for every need that you have? That you don't need prophets and you don't need uh, Moses, the lawgiver, anymore. Every need you have is supplied in Christ Jesus. And in verse 8, they looked around and no longer saw anyone but Jesus. Well, here's one more point. Remember Moses was put in the cleft of the rock to protect him from the holiness and the divinity and the power of God. Now, these disciples are standing in the cloud, and they're not dead. Why? Why? Because of Jesus. If you are in Jesus, you don't have to fear standing in the presence of God. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says you can come to the throne of God by grace and not fear. So, they saw God's glory, and they lived. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul will later put it like this. Because of Jesus, we can stand in the presence of God, and here's how it works. For our sake, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, all the sin on him, so that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, when we got Jesus in our lives, we're clothed in Jesus' righteousness. That allows us to go directly to the heart of the Father in worship and in prayer to adore his glory and not be fearful of it. That's why they didn't die that day. They could see the fullness of God's glory because they saw it in Jesus and he was their protector. You think maybe that's why the church has been singing Rock of Ages for so many years? You know, Jesus is now the rock. It says, Rock of Ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee, in his righteousness. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save me from wrath and make me pure. We can stand in the presence of God because we've got the purity of Christ. So where do we go with this? He's our righteous covering. We can go directly to the Father through the Son. He's our access point to the Father. He has all authority to do anything that we need in our lives He is the Father's Son whom the Father loves. And when we're with Jesus, we're embraced by the love of the Father as well. He is all we need. But here's the failure. Here's the failure. We uh, don't need to turn far before we see in chapter 9, verse 20, the problem with the disciples. Uh, They brought a young boy to Jesus. The Father did. And what was wrong with the boy? He was possessed by a demon. The boy was convulsing, he foamed at the mouth, rolled around on the ground. It says that the demon tried to cast him into the fire several times to kill him, and he had a spirit that made him both deaf and mute. This boy's life had been wrecked by evil, wrecked by evil. 
The father is bringing his most precious possession, his only son, to Jesus. Problem is, Jesus is up on the mountain, right? You missed out. All you got is those other nine. That's all you got. Peter, James, and John are gone. Jesus is gone. And those nine are colossal failures. I mean, why? Why is that? That should be your question today. Why did they fail? Well, Jesus has already, in chapter 3, verse 15, given them authority and commissioned them to cast out demons. Why can't they do that now? In chapter 6, verse 13, Mark tells us that they were doing their own missionary work, casting out demons, anointing people with oil for healing, and many were healed and relieved of evil spirits. Why can't they do it here? What have they forgotten? Why aren't they successful now? Why can't this boy be healed? Two things. Verse 19 tells us, Jesus answered them and said, O faithless generation, how long do I have to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? They had no faith in Jesus. They had not the kind of faith that it, it took to cast out demons and to do miraculous works. You see, the only thing we can conclude is they've begun to depend on themselves. they become very self-reliant. They thought they'd already had some successes with demons and healing folks. Now they thought they could do it in their own power and their own authority. Church, don't do that. Don't do that. Look at verse 28 and 29. Uh, they asked Jesus, why could we not cast this demon out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. You see that? They're going toe-to-toe with the demonic world, with a demon that's wrecked this young boy's life, and they're doing it without prayer. Can you imagine how, uh, how arrogant that was? How clueless they are at their own insufficiencies. Can you imagine them not embracing their own inadequacies? So they didn't come with faith in Christ who can do all things. They didn't come in prayer to Jesus who's the access point to the Father. They tried to do it on themselves. I think maybe that's why Jesus said in John's gospel, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Church, there is no good in us without Jesus. There is no fruitfulness about our lives or our ministry or our churches without Jesus. we got to stand in his glory. We've got to worship him in the beauty of holiness. Everything rests on his authority. And knowing the Father comes only through the Son. So, the one thing that they're saying is, when you're a Christian and you're not enveloped in prayer... What you're saying is, God, I got this. I don't need you. I'm sufficient for my needs. I'm sufficient. I'm clever enough. I'm smart enough. I'm self-reliant, and I don't really need you, Father. Isn't that what these disciples were saying? They're going toe-to-toe with a demon. They're not even praying. They're not even advocating the name of Jesus. So in the end, they're trying to do the work that Christ has called them to do, without calling on the one who originally called them to do the work. He commissioned them, but in his name and his authority. Now, praying rightly, there's one other character to look at. In this mission, there's only one character who gets it right today, and that's the father. So I want you to hear this. The little boy's father comes to Jesus in verse 22 and makes his plea to Jesus. He says, but... If you can do anything, have compassion on us 
and help us. Have compassion. I've, I've reached the end of my wits. I've tried every other Savior. I, I, you've, you're all I've got left, Jesus. If you have compassion, help me. And Jesus says, I can, verse 23, and all things are possible for those who believe. Do you maybe think that Jesus and Mark's gospel is saying this guy is going to get a miracle if he believes, where the disciples failed because of their unbelief? I think Mark wants to see that pattern. One comes with belief, one tried to do it with unbelief. And so Jesus um, talks to the guy in verse 24 and uh, asks him, do you believe? And he says, the father cries out to Jesus, I believe, now help my unbelief. Friends, that is one of the greatest expressions of helplessness that you'll find in the scriptures. That is the position of every prayer warrior that you've ever met that is successful in their prayer life or their worship life. Lord, I can't do it. Lord, I'm insufficient. Lord, I don't even have the faith that would allow me to, to fully give my son over to you. I believe, but you've got to help me with my unbelief. In other words, his faith life was not perfect. He wasn't a saint. He simply was somebody who was helpless and needed the Savior. You see, if we're self-reliant and self-sufficient, who's the Savior? We are. If we're self-reliant and self-sufficient, do we need to pray? No, we can do it without God. So this guy gets it right. He puts all his trust in Jesus, and even his faith, which is weak and frail and shaky, he says, Jesus, help me with that too. Help me with that too. I believe you can do this, and I trust you'll help with my unbelief. And you know, Jesus basically says, that'll work. That's a faith I can play with. That, that's a, that's a, a man I can shape after God's own heart. It's not a prayer of holiness. It's a prayer of helplessness. And I want you to see that. So this guy cries out to Jesus, and Jesus honors it and saves his son and restores him to the fullness of health. The disciples, on the other hand, had faith in themselves and their own ability. Church, we can't do that. We've got to be a church of prayer, a church that comes to Jesus with everything, a church that admit, admits not our holiness, but our helplessness and our need for God and our dependence on Jesus alone. He is the access point to the Father, and it is my pleasure to be able to worship with you today and see his glory and see his beauty and know the Father's love. And then to draw together as a community that is loved because we are in Christ. We need not fear. We can come in the full presence of Jesus because of what he's done for us. Peter, James, and John, they experience glory. And that word glory means weightiness, heaviness, means significance. It, it, in fact, the word worship comes from the English word worthy. We're giving God his worth, his weightiness, his significance, his sufficiency. And when he is weighty and sufficient and for all of our needs, then we realize we're insufficient and we need Jesus. So helplessness, not holiness, gets us there. So here's what you need to take home about this. If you're a Christian right now and you don't have a prayer life that's significant and deep, you need to ask yourself, why not? Uh, if you admit your insufficiencies and you know he is as strong as what we saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, why aren't you going to him? Is it because you trust in yourself? Uh, ask yourself that question. If you're a Christian who's drifted away from a prayer life and need to rediscover it, 
I, I, I challenge you to do that. Come into his presence. Only in Christianity can we see God's glory in the face of Jesus and live and enjoy God's love in that way. So redevelop that. I just love, and I'll end with this, um, what uh, Bishop J.C. Ryle said. He was Bishop of Liverpool in the 1800s. My my men's group is reading this book right now. And he said this about Jesus and the advocacy that he gives us. He says, there is an advocate and intercessor always waiting to present the prayers of those who come to God through him. That advocate is Jesus Christ. He mingles our prayers with the incense of his own almighty intercession. And so mingled, they go up to the Father as a savor before the throne of God, so sweet and so dear. Poor as our prayers are in themselves, they are mighty and powerful in the hand of the high priest, our elder brother. He said it's like a banknote without a signature at the bottom. And it's worth nothing. It's a worthless piece of paper except for the stroke of pen that confers on it all its value. The prayer of a poor child of Adam is a feeble thing in itself, but once endorsed by the hand of the Lord Jesus, it avails much. Just so, the ear of the Lord Jesus is ever open to the cry of all those who need mercy and grace. Lord, I believe, now help my unbelief. It is his office to help his people Therefore, prayer is a delight, Bishop Ryle says. Think of this. Is this not an encouragement to all? Folks, hear yourself in that. Are you more where the disciples were trying to do life on your own? Or are you more like that guy who said, Lord, I believe you can do this, and I even want you to help in my unbelief? Let us pray. Father, if if we've drifted from a life of prayer and authentic worship, if we have not sought your glory as we should if we've not come through the right avenues, which is grace and and the power of Jesus. Lord, forgive us. Set our souls and our hearts right again so that we may seek your face and live and enjoy the love of the Father, to see your glory shining out into the world, even to reflect that glory to the world as Moses reflected the Shekinah glory of the Father to his people. Help us in prayer, dear Lord, to humble ourselves to know that you are sufficient for every need and there's no need you will not provide for us if we'll just humble ourselves and ask for it. So Lord, if we've become the Savior, take us down a notch and humble us. Let our eyes lift to the true Savior of the world, our access point to the Father, who is Jesus Christ the righteous. It's in his name that we pray.